What is up, Brick Stackers? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Stacking the Bricks. As always, I'm your host, Alex Hillman, and this is another edition of the Tiny MBA Podcast Tour. Over the last few weeks, I've been visiting podcasts all across the internet, talking with entrepreneurs and creative people just like you. And this time, I paid a visit to the Rec Philly community right here in Philadelphia. Rec stands for Resources for Every Creator and is a pretty incredible community and resource center geared towards helping artists, musicians, and other kinds of entrepreneurial creators turn their creative skills into real business opportunities. Just last year, they opened an amazing facility that's sort of like a gym, but with digital audio stations and recording studios instead of treadmills and weights. I also really admire their dedication to education and making sure that their community knows how to make the most of having access to those incredibly powerful tools, not just giving them those tools. But most of all, I love the people. The staff, the leadership, and every community member that I've met at REC over the last couple of years is so smart and creative and really some of the best that Philly has to offer. So I was so excited when the team invited me to one of their creator sessions to share some of the stories and lessons surrounding one of my personal favorite lessons in the tiny MBA, that audience building is really just building trust at scale. The entire session that I did with REC is more than twice as long as what you're about to hear on the podcast and includes a bunch of parts of my personal business story. You can check that out on Recfilly's YouTube channel, which I'll link in the show notes. But here in the feed, I jumped straight into the lessons. In fact, you're going to hear me give details and context for 10 of my favorite lessons from the Tiny MBA, which I handpicked specifically for this audience of creators at Recfilly, and of course, why I picked each one. After sharing these lessons, I was joined on the virtual stage by Rec Philly co-founder and my good friend, Will Toms. Will is one of my favorite interviewers and moderators to watch work, so for me, being on the receiving end of his questions was a lot of fun. And for you, you're going to get some new answers that you definitely haven't heard me talk about anywhere. Some of my favorite questions from Will and the audience included the importance of listening as a business skill and how you can practice it, where I learned how to sell people back their time and confidence, and how much sharing is oversharing. That last one's new. I love any chance to jam with the Rec Philly crew, and I'm very excited to share this session with you. So with that, I hope you enjoy this very special presentation from the Rec Philly archives. Here we go. What I really want is for folks to, to see these lessons and do one of a couple of things. I hope that they either show you a path to a thing that you already wanted to do. Maybe they, they affirm a path that you're already on, but you don't hear very often. I think there's a lot of times as, as creatives, we are taking a path that is uncommon and our friends don't get it. Our family doesn't get it. And then we look at what's happening in the media and we go, well, why am I not as successful as that person? Maybe I need to do the things that they're doing in order to get there. And I'm here to say that so long as you're focused on the fundamentals, that that almost is never true. So number one, I, I hope that something here affirms you. Number two, I hope maybe something causes you or encourages you to ask a question. The stuff that's in the tiny MBA is it's not a replacement for an MBA. It is definitely not everything you need to know about business, but it is is meant to be a set of, in many cases, the hard-won lessons that I've learned through building both Indie Hall as a community and a business and Stacking the Bricks as both a community and a business. And they're the things that I I get asked about the most. They're the things that I observe the most but don't get asked about and wish more people asked me about. And they're the things that uh, I think are, are the fundamentals that people know, but then forget when they get sort of 
caught up in whatever's going on in their life or stress or peer pressure or just getting inside our own heads, right? It's so easy to do that. So the the first lesson is that really the title of this talk, which is that audience building is really just earning trust at scale. And to go a little bit deeper on that, there's another lesson in here that says lots of people get stuck on the idea of audience building because it feels like an abstract outcome of self-promotion. And for a lot of people, especially creative people, self-promotion holds serious negative connotations. I think that this is because a lot of people have only seen examples of bad self-promotion. I have always gotten the sense and vibe from the Rec Philly community that this is a place where when people are talking about themselves, it's done in an environment where people are sharing because they want their peers to lift them up. And I think that if self-promotion is done well, that's exactly how it works. It can be you talking about your work so that your peers can lift you up. It can also be talking about your work so the people who already bought your work can talk you up, right? I love buying art from Philadelphia artists, and I really, really struggle sometimes when those artists make it hard for me to talk about how much I love their work or where to buy their work. Make it easy for the people who love your stuff to talk about your stuff. That's just as critical of a piece of self-promotion as talking about it in the first place. And related to that, the next lesson that I wanted to share is that earning trust is a critical piece of sales. Sales is a weird word in in creative circles. And I think for the same reason that self-promotion is a weird word. People say, I don't like being sold to. And that's true. But I think most of that is because people don't like being sold, feel like they're being manipulated, right? And sales and manipulation are not the same thing, right? In my opinion, in the same way that bad self-promotion feels bad because you've only seen bad parts of it, bad sales feels bad because it skips a step, a really important step, which is earning the privilege of asking for the sale. I want you to think about what that really means for a second. If you want somebody to buy something from you, and I'm going to use the word buy, but buy doesn't necessarily mean to put money directly from their wallet into yours. If you're a, a, you know, a musician, buy could mean stream my song on Spotify, tune into my live stream on YouTube. Buy it can be money, but buy can also be attention. Buy can be people sharing their effort and action. And if, some, if you have not done the work to earn someone's trust, you also haven't done the work to earn the privilege of asking for the sale. And that's why asking for sales feels bad to us is because we feel like we haven't earned it. And so I think that that's a good thing to understand about ourselves and realize, okay, all that means is if I'm giving more than I'm asking, I'm good, right? And so that means putting out your work, not being selfish with your work, not being protective of your work, showing the creative work, also showing the creative process, bringing people into your creativity. In some cases, teaching people how you do it. I'll I'll give you a concrete example, and not that they're selling me anything, but I love watching cooking videos on YouTube in particular. And I love eating. I love delicious food. I do not have any desire to learn how to cook, but I have a deep passion for craftsmanship and learning how people who are good at what they do make it. And if they ever give me something to buy, you can be sure that I'd be there to buy it, whether it's with my money, my time, or my attention. And so inviting people into your creative process is and can be part of that. Bring them into your world with you. I think that's part of earning trust at scale. And there's another lesson in here. I called it ruthless generosity. 
saying that that scales extremely well and that I'm amazed that more people and companies don't deploy it at scale. People can only deploy it to a certain scale. Companies, I think, have the potential to deploy it at massive scale just because there's more than one person doing it. But when you're just one person, when I say ruthless generosity scales extremely well, I mean sort of two things. One, being ruthlessly generous means looking for ways to be generous, not just when people are asking for something, but ways to help people before they've even had a chance to ask you specifically. That means being places where your audience is, spending time where they are, learning what they love, and being there to anticipate when they want or need something and then to offer or create that. Be generous before they get a chance to ask. And you can only do that if you are where they are. The other piece to being ruthlessly generous is to look for ways that helping one person can help more than one person. And I'll give you a really concrete example of this. If you are a creative person with creative skills, you have inevitably been asked, hey, can I pick your brain about something? whether it's a friend or a family member or, or, or something like that. And it puts you in an awkward position because you're like, yo, I got to get paid for my time. But also, you know, that that's kind of an awkward response. And sometimes charging for that time puts you in a position to, to maybe be turning away an opportunity a couple steps down the road. So you got to earn the trust first. So how do you handle all of this? And one of the things that I've, the practices I've built is when somebody re does reach out to me, or when I notice an opportunity to help somebody or provide value for somebody, I look for ways to make sure it's recorded. That's something that this community is very, very good at. So if I'm helping somebody over email, I like helping people over email because it gives me time to work on my time to formulate my thoughts, but it also gives me the ability to take what I wrote, copy it out of that email, put it in a Google doc, and then come back to it in a few days or a week or longer and say, what else would be needed in this in order to have this piece of advice or perspective help more than just one person. Because the thing to remember is helping one person in the way they need to be helped is a pretty good clue that they're not the only person who needs that help now or will ever need that help in the future. And if you can think those couple of steps ahead to make sure that the way you're helping one person sets you up so that the next time somebody asks that question or the next time somebody has that problem, you can say, hey, I recorded a video about exactly how to do that. Or, hey, I wrote an article about that. Or, hey, I already have a song or piece of art all about that. When you've, it makes it look like you've anticipated their needs, like you're a wizard. When in fact, the truth is, is most people want similar things, just not always at the same time. So having things documented gives you the ability to scale your generosity beyond an initial moment. So 30 minutes answering an email of one person is not practical if I'm not getting paid for it. But responding to that email in a way that takes 30 minutes that it can help hundreds or thousands of people when they type that problem into Google or YouTube, absolutely worth those 30 minutes might be the best 30 minutes I spend that day. What I'm talking about is being a force multiplier, right? You put in 30 minutes of effort, but the value scales over and over and over, over time. In order for that to work, you need to know where your clients and customers feel like they are wasting their time and effort. If we're talking about creative skills, and this is a little bit different from selling art, but I think if you have creative skills that you're selling to businesses or other professionals, the key here about valuing time is that when somebody is buying your time, they're not actually buying your time. What they're doing is they're buying back their time, right? People don't value your time inherently, at least, and definitely not the way you do. But what they do value is their own time. And if you can understand how they value their time and then do something that saves them time or effort or energy or gives them confidence to be able to accomplish the thing that they want to do, they're going to perceive their time 
as finite and valuable. And therefore it is worth paying a proportional amount for your time because it's actually them buying back their own. That's kind of a loopy thought. And I think folks might want to go back and listen to the recording of that. But I, I, another, uh, an example I've heard of, shared about this, I think is really interesting is why things like Uber and Lyft are so popular. It's convenience. Yes. But the truth is, is there's also the potential loss of time of call, you know, calling a cab or waiting for a cab. How long am I going to be waiting? Are they even going to show up? Whereas using Lyft means I can press a button and I know exactly how long it's going to be before the, the driver gets there. For that fee, I'm not only buying a ride, I'm buying the time and confidence to know when my ride is going to arrive and that I'm going to get to the destination that I need to get to on time. So thinking about how other people value their time when pricing your own. Most people overlook their own customers as a potential source of growth capital. People think I need to grow, therefore I need investors. Maybe. But if you've done good things for your customers, if your customers value you, nobody wants you to succeed more than your customers do because they want you to be around. And we were starting Indie Hall. I didn't know how to go get investors, but I also knew that I had people who wanted this thing to exist as much or in some cases more than I did. And if I could figure out how to have them effectively be the source of capital without necessarily need, even needing to give up equity and control, if I could think about things like pre-sales, if I could think about things like packaging, I could have our existing members and customers, we've done this with Stacking the Bricks countless times, the funds from one product or service can be then used to fund the creation of the next one. Looking at those sort of stair-step approach has been foundational in growing Indie Hall into what it is and being in total control of our own destiny and in everything we've ever done in Stacking the Bricks, just the same. I was able to hire whatever designer I wanted. I was able to spend as much time as I wanted publishing the tiny MBA because we've got other parts of the business already making money. I can reinvest that money into the new products and services. The next lesson is that you never know and you can never know which client or project or conversation or relationship will be the one that helps you achieve your next goal. When you're in those early stages of community or audience building, it is really easy to think about if I could just get on that one person's podcast or if that one you know, streamer just puts my song while they're streaming you know, or, or in, in their TikTok or whatever it is, if I just get that one big one, that's my big break, right? But the truth is, is it could come from anywhere. It could be a big one. It could be a small one. There's no way to know. But you also will never know if you don't ask for help from the people who have a reason to trust you. So bring all that full, full circle. If you're investing time and energy into building trust, you have the opportunity to then make withdrawals from that investment and say, hey, I'm looking to accomplish X. Here's where I want to go. Can you help me get there and give them concrete things to do? You never know who's going to be the person who's got that next piece of support that you need, but you also will never get it if you don't ask. And I know how hard it is to ask for help, but I also know how valuable it can be to ask for it from people who already love what you've done for them up to that point. If you're new to an industry, and I know there's a bunch of folks in here that are breaking into your creative industry, one of the best habits that you can cultivate is to work in public. Document what you're thinking, what you're learning, what you're doing as you go. This will perpetually be a valuable as a skill and an asset, even if you don't know exactly how. But the key is that the longer you wait to do it, the harder it is to start because you start feeling like everything needs to be big or important or profound. When in reality, the most important stuff, whether it's relationships or knowledge, is small stuff. 
that adds up over time. Last summer, uh, I hired somebody to help me redesign my personal blog, which I've been writing in since 2005. And without knowing it, I was documenting the creation of Indie Hall. And about two years into that, I started getting emails from people saying, hey, I found your blog about how you started Indie Hall. It was super helpful for me. I'm starting a co-working space in some Eastern European country. And I'm like, who are you and why are you reading my blog? And the truth is, even though I was writing it for myself at the time, I was basically journaling in public because I was writing down what I was learning and how I was solving problems. Somebody else down the road was going to come across that stuff, find it useful. And guess what? Now they're interested in what else I have to say. And you can imagine how valuable that can be going forward. Last bit here. This one is actually the very first piece of of the 100 pieces in the tiny MBA. And I said, most people pay way too much attention to the things that do not matter to their customers. That is key. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's that it doesn't matter to your customers. Things like press and awards and drama and hype. And you know what I'm talking about. Your customers don't care about that stuff. They care about themselves. They care about how you help them. They care about how you reach them, how you touch them, how you connect with them. And press and awards and drama and hype are like real good for the serotonin, for that moment, that juice that makes you feel a certain way. But in the long run, your, your customers and your audience don't care about that stuff. And they, they almost certainly won't remember it. So the advice I give is to pay attention to who and what you were paying attention to. Be picky about that. Pick two big things that you've let distract you in the past and get rid of them. Cut them out. Press, awards, drama, hype. You can pick a category. You can pick one specific source of it. However you want to do that, take that with you. And the last piece is if you can't build the business you're dreaming of today, build the business you can build today. It's a step in the right direction and it's a whole hell of a lot better than building no business at all. And Will, if you want to come back and, and shoot some questions, I would love to answer them. You got it. You got it. First off, thank you. That that was incredible, man. Like I, I feel the same way I feel after our conversations where I'm just like, I got to I gotta have taken the notes so I can really go back over some of this stuff because it's just so dense and valuable information. So thank you, first and foremost. So Alex, I actually have a couple questions of my own, and I also grabbed a couple from the chat as we were going. And for anyone who right has on. questions right now is a great opportunity and a great time to go ahead and drop those in. And let's go ahead and be able to glean all the insights from Alex while we have him. So first and foremost, Nick in the chat asks, how do you be ruthlessly generous when you're just exhausted at having done that? What are your thoughts yep. on that, Alex? So as the flight attendant says, put on your oxygen mask before helping somebody else. Mm. And the reason they give that advice is because if you don't, <laughs> you will die. <laughs> <laughs> but but I also, even if they don't say it differently, I hear it differently is put on your oxygen mask so that you can help other people, right? So I said before, and they typically say, put on your oxygen mask so that you can help other people. And the truth is, is if you are not putting on your oxygen mask, you cannot be ruthlessly generous, which means you need to make time to recuperate. You need to find things in your life that give you energy to, to sit down and do it. And, and I'll, I'll say there's sometimes it doesn't look like you're going to have that energy going into it. Right. But here's, here's the other piece to this. Having a bit of self-awareness to figure out where you get your energy from, I think is a big tool that every creative person can do because the way you do your creative work is probably very aligned in some way with how you make your energy or get your energy. So everyone's a little bit different, 
But one of the things that I know about almost every creative person that I know is part of the way they get their energy is a feedback loop. Mm. And many times when I feel most exhausted and when other people that I talk to are feeling too exhausted to sit down and write down that thing, it's because they've spent so much time in their own head without a feedback loop that they can't really imagine how good it feels when you do send it off and somebody writes back and they go, oh my God, this is exactly what I needed. Thank you. And if it's been too long since you've heard that, you've got some work to do to sort of build up that flywheel again. So I think self-care is super important in nursing where you get your energy from. The other thing is, is like my generosity modes are different depending on the day and how I'm feeling. Sometimes it's an email. Sometimes it's on Twitter. Sometimes it's, sometimes somebody writes in and I'm like, I really want to answer this, but I just don't have the time because writing is the hardest kind of thinking that exists in my opinion. So, and Will knows this trick. Sometimes I'm like, don't worry about writing it down. Open up your phone, pull out a voice memo or a video and talk for a minute because everyone can talk for a minute and do that. And worst case scenario, you get the idea out of your head and you know what to write. In some cases, you get it right on the first take. And now you can either send that person that video and they're going to be like, oh my God, you recorded a personal video for me? No, I've created a personal video for me (laughs) and you get to benefit from it. But then you can also do what I've seen the rec crew do so well, which is take that one piece and break it up into a million different formats, right? Now that video can be turned into audio. It can be transcribed into a blog post. It can be put on, it can be put in multiple places. So, yeah. uh, so get comfortable being like, if I don't feel like writing it, maybe I should try recording it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you were truly exhausted and which I, you look, especially now, (laughs) there's a lot of reasons to be exhausted. Be kind to yourself and give yourself that oxygen mask so that you can help people ruthlessly. I love that. Yeah. Thanks for that question, Nick. And uh, thanks for the answer, Alex. That was great. So one of the things that I really just uh, love that I'm going to maybe tattoo it in the future moment, I don't know, that idea that people don't buy your time, they buy back their own. I Mm. think that was an incredible kind of like idea to really kind of grasp. I'm wondering at what point did you grasp that concept? And maybe is there a story you can share around when you realized that there was a pivot you could make and how you thought about that? I can think back to like early sales experiences that really molded me. And, and it was long before I was anything entrepreneurial. I worked in sales at, at Staples, right? Retail job. Everybody's got one. And I sold computers. I saw business machines, they called it, right? So I'm selling computers. I'm selling printers. I'm selling cables. This is the time where software was sold in boxes. That was weird. Cell phones computer parts, all the electronics, all that stuff. And I had, I had an advantage of being knowledgeable for a customer base who at this point in time was not knowledgeable. In many cases, people were buying their first computer. Wow. Interesting time, right? Yeah. And interesting time to think about. So I, first of all, I watched my fellow sales associates and I watched them bring somebody in and as quickly as possible talk them into the most expensive computer that they could because it's going to boost their numbers and they're going to get a bonus. Or, and that's like why people feel skeevy about sales. Mm. And I took a long view and I said, I would rather somebody buy a computer that actually fits their needs today. So they're going to come back next time when they have a question or a problem and they're going to ask for me by name. Wow. All right. 
And so this this is a slightly different version of buying back their time. People were, weren't just buying a computer. They were buying confidence mm-hmm. in the computer and that they made a good decision and that they were going to be smart using this tool that they were worried was going to make them feel stupid. Mm-hmm. And I made it all about them. I said, what do you want to do with this first computer? Oh, you want to get on the internet? Do you want to you know, do word processing? Do you have any kids? Do they want to play games? And I'd take what they told me and I'd say, okay, Here's the one that's going to fit your needs now and is it makes it easy for you to do upgrades down the road. So I'm selling them back their their time. I'm selling them back their confidence mm-hmm. and I'm buying myself a future customer. So I'm actually spending more time with a customer up front than any other sales associate, but I'm closing more deals and I'm going to make more when they decide, okay, it's time to buy a printer or, hey, I need to buy, need to buy that accounting software or... Hey, like I bought a computer from you two years ago and it was great, but it's time for an upgrade or we need a laptop or the kids going to college. Mm -hmm. I was buying a lifetime with a customer. And, and I think that is, I think it's very much related to how time is, is purchased and sold. And and one of the things that I feel like I'm hearing throughout some of the different kind of business um, lessons you're sharing is this idea of like you being an incredible listener. You know, like you're, you're asking the right questions and then listening, right? It, it yeah, seemed like yeah. even in the early days of Indie Hall, you were getting interface, you know, opportunities with community members and listening. How important do you think that skill is as an entrepreneur when we're looking to build trust? And maybe even specifically when we're thinking about the content, the right content to create, the right things to create for our audiences. Number one. <laughs> it's like, it's, I mean, I, look, it's, it's something that takes a lifetime to get good at. So yeah. start practicing now if you're not doing it already. I, I will, I will offer a book recommendation besides my own. And it's actually, it's in the, this book recommendation is in the book and it's one of my favorite. I think it is my number one favorite non-business business book because it is all about listening and most business books aren't right They're They, they abstract that stuff away. So the book is called just listen by an author named Mark Goulston. G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N or E-N? I can't remember. I should remember that at some point. And the reason Mark, so Mark is a clinical psychologist. So he's coming at this from the perspective of his job is literally to listen to people when they're not listening to each other and help them listen to each other. That is what a psychologist does. Mark Goulston is also a trainer for hostage negotiators in the FBI. Oh, wow. Sounds like light work. (laughs) (laughs) What do they have in common? Listening. Yeah. It's all about meeting somebody where they are, which means you have to really understand where they are and conflict between life and spousal partners, kids and their parents, close friends, coworkers, managers, and a hostage in the cops. It's all about what, what happens in our brains when we're in conflict. And one of the key pieces of it is we feel like we're not being heard. And all we want to do is be heard, but we can't figure it out. And so we lash out. And again, he's framing it in conflict. But if you think about this in a sales or community building context, it's like, how anxious is this person versus how open is this person? How alone is this person versus how connected is this person? So think about it on that 10 point scale where they are and where they need to be. Almost no one is going to start at one end of the spectrum or the other. They're going to be somewhere on that 10 point scale. And if you find someone's at a seven, you can't jump them to a one or a two. You got to go from seven to six, six to five, five to four. And what are you doing at each step? 
You're earning trust. I'm meeting you where you are. I'm not telling you where to go. I'm just trying to get, I'm trying to get us on the same page so that I can take us one step closer to common ground, one step closer to trust. And so in terms of a practicable skills of listening, I think Just Listen as a book, the subtitle is How to Get Through to Absolutely Anybody, mm. because that's what people want to do. But what people need to do is actually listen to the other person in order to figure out where you need to get them to. It's it's brilliant. And my favorite thing about this book is it does teach really practicable lessons. But the last thing you want to do is like learn some psychology tricks and then use them on your girlfriend or your, you know, <laughs> or your team teammate or whatever. So what instead it has you use them on yourself. Mm. because we are real bad at listening to ourselves too. Wow. And so every piece of this framework is something you can do, but you practice it on yourself before you go do it on somebody else. It's these exercises. I literally use them every day. I love that. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, have to check that one out after I finish your book. Of yeah. This one first, then just listen. There you go. <laughs> um, another another question I had for you, We were you were talking about some strategies for folks to be able to self-promote, right? And especially if you're an introvert, that could be some of the most like nerve-wracking things. And you talked about like working in public, right? And, and how sometimes documenting your creative process can be an easy way to promote yourself. I'm wondering what's your perspective on like when is too much sharing? How much sharing is oversharing? Or is there a such thing, right? In the digital age, sometimes we, we can stress ourselves out about how much content to put out. So what's your perspective on how much is too much? That's a really interesting question. The way you sort of frame it at the end there, there's a, there's a volume question, you know, Mm -hmm. how many, how often am I sharing? Mm -hmm. And when I heard the question initially, I wasn't thinking about volume. I was more thinking about what you're sharing. So there's kind of two questions in there, right? So, so, so maybe we look at both. So I'll answer the, your question first, and then I'll go back to my, my, my take on it. In terms of volume, I think the key is thinking about signal versus noise. Are you sharing to share? Are you sharing for a reason? And what is that reason? If the only time you talk is because you've got something to talk about, uh, that's not really connecting, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a fine line between shouting into the void to create volume and therefore sort of increased odds of being seen. And I feel like that's where things get dicey and potentially too much. If you're sharing to connect, that means you're doing it in a place where you know people are, you know they're listening, And what you're sharing is stuff that you already know they want. So if you've skipped that first step of knowing who you're creating it for and where they are, it's real easy to kind of overstep your boundaries and just be like, got a thing, got a thing, and and never get that feedback loop because they're like, good for you. I don't care. But if you connect first, right, you got to make that deposit before you make that withdrawal, Mm -hmm. then it's about keeping it balanced. And I don't think there's a right equation. I I do a lot of work with folks that are more, again, on the tech side of creative. So, you know, programming and design and web design and graphic design. And uh, there's a sort of an unspoken rule in some online watering holes about it's a 10 to one ratio. Give 10 times before you ask. Oh, wow. That's not a hard and fast rule. Yeah. Uh, So I think it's more about reading the room Mm-hmm. I think it's more about looking for cultural norms. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more about looking for ways to do more than the bare minimum. If the rule is 10 to one, I would do 15 to one. Mm-hmm. If the rule is five to one, I would do 10 to one, right? I'm, I want to, I want to be ge- ruthlessly generous. I want to give more than the bare minimum. So that's, that's in terms of volume. But again, that other framing is what, what you share. And so again, part of that is what's going to connect. What do they want? What do they want more of? And that's where that feedback loop is required. But in order for a feedback loop to start, you need to listen first. 
mm-hmm. back to our last question. So that's why that listening is, is so paramount. I think where things get tricky with opening up your process, I think sharing of process, it's hard to share too much. I think people love seeing the nitty gritty. Some people will pay attention to everything. Most people will pay attention to a tiny slice. Mm -hmm. I think it's just the nature of the beast. I think when I've seen sharing turn into oversharing is, so here's the thing is like vulnerability with your audience can be super, super powerful, but you have to earn trust in order to do that too. So if you're having a bad day, I think it is really powerful to tell people, Hey, I'm having a bad day. So I'm going to take today off. That's a, that is a really, really valuable thing to do. But if three out of eight times you go on IG live and you're talking about how stressful your day was, then all this stuff is about you and how hard things are for you and not about them and not Mm -hmm. about how you want to connect with them. And so there's a line to walk between being vulnerable about the realities of being a creator and an entrepreneur and making it too much about you and not about them. I don't, again, I don't think there's a hard and fast ratio or rule here. There is a, a, a bit of knowing who your audience is. And, you know, maybe there's a core audience that you're a bit more vulnerable with. Maybe you've got a special private DM that you've got them in and you share a little bit more with them because there's more trust being built there. But I think being smart about boundaries and remembering that proportionally it's got to be more about them than it is about you which is weird when you're a creator and it's about your art. It's about putting yourself out there. There's a reason people love your art. It's because your art connects with them. It's doing something for them. It makes them feel a certain way. And it's not that they don't care about your feelings. It's they care about their feelings more. And so finding the balance and finding ways to, if you're going to share it, share it to connect. And look, you're going to fuck it up. <laughs> it's okay to do that. And then it's okay to apologize about that, but don't over-apologize. Get back on track. If you find yourself off track, the easiest way to get out of your own head is to get into somebody else's. Spend some time in their head. What's going on in their day? Ask them about them mm-hmm. and then show up for them. That is like, you you can undo a misstep by showing up for your community and your audience. So long as you don't make the same mistake too many times in a row. Yeah. If your default is, look, I'm here for you, you, you can go really far. I love that. Thanks for that, Alex. And I guess one of the reasons why I think I like learning from you so much is I feel like you're the perfect balance of like a philosopher and a doer. You know what I mean? And maybe the philosophies mean that that's why you have them because you've done so much shit that you had the the foresight or I guess the the reflection skills to step back and then glean those philosophies, right? One of the things that I always see is almost like a moniker of yours is these four letters, J-F-D-I. Tell us what that is and what that's all about and where that philosophy came from. So it's a moniker. It's literally tattooed on my arm. So I have to see it twice a day when I brush my teeth. Nice. JFDI stands for just fucking do it. And this is fun to share because I don't often share this in front of a, a crew of, where there's musicians in the room. Mm-hmm. So there's JFDI on this side. On this side, the circle is just like a designer flourish, but in, this, in the circle is a fermata mm-hmm. from sheet music. And those two symbols and ideas are complementary. I got JFDI first. JFDI, just fucking do it, is a reminder to myself to that thing that I know I'm supposed to do, that I should do, but I'm hesitating for some reason, that I'm not trusting myself to just fucking do it, right? It's not just fucking do anything. It's not just fucking do everything. It's the thing that you already know is the right thing, but you're not trusting yourself to make the action happen. Make the action happen. And there's no, there's no way around it. There's the only way to do it is to do it. 
here's the thing is, is JFDI has been picked up as sort of a mantra within Indie Hall and lots of other communities among creators that, that I think picked it up for the right reasons. And in some cases, maybe took it a little bit too far. It, it sort of starts bordering on recklessness where it's like, whatever you want to do, just do it. No, no, no. That's not the point here consider. And so the reason the formata is on the other side is the formata means sustain, one of a number of sustained notes. Sustain notes are markers in sheet music that tell the musician to hold the note for a two count, a four count, an eight count, whatever it might be. The formata is unique in that it tells you to hold or sustain. And the word sustain is what really drew me to it because it's like JFDI, but make sure you're, you're sustaining, you're keeping a long view. You can hold the note, philosophically speaking. The thing that I love about the Fermata is it's, to my understanding, the only mark in all of sheet music that puts the creative control back in the hands of the player or the conductor. Mm. Everything else tells you how many beats. The Fermata says, hold that note for as long as you feel is appropriate, which means you need to read the room. You need to feel the vibe. You need to make the decision. And so there's sort of, there's like a layered story to this mark. One is the literal interpretation of sustain and hold the note. And the other is, you are driving. This is your call. Play the note as long as you think is appropriate, but it's your call. And I feel like those two, those two ideas are, they're yin and yang. They, they hold each other up. One doesn't make sense without the other. You have to take the action in order to have a thing worth sustaining. But if you take action too recklessly without the intention to hold the note, and I feel like those are those are all tied together in in sometimes a practical, tactical, and strategic way, and sometimes a philosophical and cosmic way. But I think mm-hmm. they're all a part of the same message yeah. and story. I love that, and and I think that's a really good place to close because I think you know this whole conversation you've delivered us tons of value just around this idea of building trust at scale. And I think at the end of it, though, we got to kind of dive into the importance of just trusting yourself first right? This has been really insightful for me. I know some other folks are taking value in the chat as they're watching as well. But again, please give it up for Alex Hillman. Show some gratitude in the chat for him. Alex, we really appreciate your time, man. Thanks for uh, for hanging out with us. If you enjoyed that episode, and I hope you did, I've got a couple of quick things before you go. The first, of course, is making sure that you have your very own copy of The Tiny MBA. If you haven't ordered it, I'd love it if you did, and you can grab a paperback or ebook at tiny.mba. I also hope you're subscribed to this show. We're going to be releasing more episodes like this one with other creators and entrepreneurs just like you, and I'm going to be talking with them about their favorite lessons in The Tiny MBA, learning what's going on in their world, and sharing it all with you. So you can search for that by looking for Stacking the Bricks wherever you get podcasts. And one last thing check out the Stack in the Bricks website. We've got a great newsletter with new articles coming out every week or two, following on a lot of the same topics and themes that we talk about right here on the show. You can do that by going to stackingthebricks.com. I hope you have a great rest of your day and don't forget to keep on stacking those bricks.